if you're a one watch collector, yeah. if you're a yeah. one watch collector, yeah. I, I really have to say that the the Omega Planet Ocean, yes, um, you know, either a thirty nine point five or a forty three point five millimeter, uh, forty three might be big. You know, the stainless steel yeah. um, bracelet. I, I, it's it's a fantastic watch. What is that? Is that forty three? What do you got? This is a um, this is uh, a forty three uh, millimeter Rolex. Uh, it's the anniversary edition of the Sea Dweller. And what was so controversial about this watch was that when it came out, because the original Sea Dweller did not have a Cyclops over the That's date. Right. So it was highly controversial. This came out larger because yes. the normal Sea Dweller was 40 millimeters. And so this came out in an anniversary edition, 50th anniversary in 43 millimeter with a Cyclops. But I have to say, um, I thought it was stunning. And, um, and then they, you know, after that, then they, altered again the Submariner right. up to 41 millimeters. Right. So, you know, it's very minimal distinction between the right. two. And this shouldn't be mixed up with the um, the Deep Sea uh, Rolex, which is thicker. thicker. That's the one that goes down. Yeah, nowhere, nowhere close to where we'll be going. Uh, no, it won't. Um, anyways, they're, they're, they're great watches. Just so. we, We've switched up topics. We've now given up on the lost stuff. This is now a watch podcast, so welcome. No, it's just funny because uh, a few podcasts ago, you mentioned something about a watch I was wearing, and then it was really lovely because a couple of people had messaged about what they were wearing, and they said, oh, yeah, Tudor's a great watch, which was one I was wearing yes. at the time. And, you know, I don't golf. Um, no, no. I'm not a member of a social club. Um, Marcy and I don't own a property in the South, and... Um, we, we, you or know, the we Hamptons, or the Hamptons. That's and, not you the know, Hamptons. We enjoy certain pieces of jewelry, and one of my things is I just love watches. I just I find think it, it's beyond a thing. I think fetish. Yeah, it's a uh, it's we, a bit we, of an we, obsession. We send each other watch pictures late at night. It's what are you wearing weird. tonight? Tonight is a very basic mundane. This is a Swiss watch based on the design of these Swiss clocks at the Swiss railway stations. Now that's cool. It is cool. And is that a 38 millimeter? No, no, this is 36. I'm sorry. It's a, a little bit small. small. It's a bit small. Let's clink on the 36. Yeah, let's clink on the 36. Although I have to say, here's the other thing which is important, which has nothing to do with our podcast. Again? You know, if you go back a decade, the trend was for much larger watches like Panerai, 44 millimeter, 47, and even larger. That's right. And you had, you know, celebrities like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Those giant. Uh, Jason Stanham and all of them. They were wearing these much larger watches. And so, you know, the, the robust nature of these watches was a real selling feature. Right. And in the last several years, there has been a return to vintage style watches, right. which were more, if you're looking at the tool watch, traditional tool watch or the dive watch, you're looking more at about a 36 to 40 millimeter watch, where they were saying really the ideal range is around 39 millimeter. Right. So we've seen a trend back. And you can go further back with my little mini Rolex that I often am too embarrassed to wear because it's that so 34 small. Is that 34 millimeter? That must be something like that. But that's small. a really beautiful vintage piece. It is, but I wear it and I feel like I've stolen it from some young rich kid. It's so Did small. Did you get that from an auction? Yeah, from everything but the house. But, but you know, some of these auctions, you can get such gems. I mean... Yeah, you can. Are we going to talk law? No, what for? This is fun. <laughs> no, we should. We should. Yeah, so this is a, a good segue because it's... Maybe we can break during it's calming. It and go back to watches. If it's, it's calming because um, one of the topics we're going to talk about tonight, it's a little different. So, um, you know, every so often we have a case or two, which is particularly challenging. 
And um, one of those has been with... Um, uh, and just so you guys know, that's the woke way of saying, what the hell do we do with this one? It's so... Well, child complainants. And, yes. and you know, when it's in the context which we typically deal with is a high-conflict divorce where right. one parent is alienating the other. Right. And, of course, you've got motive to fabricate, which we'll talk about. Left, on. right, and center. We'll talk about. You know, so you're able to cross-examine on the influence of a parent mm -hmm. and the tainting of evidence and, you know, there's Coaching. a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of emotive, um, factual issues that are involved that will, will get you down the path you need to go to establish what, what the motive to fabricate is and, and, and why the evidence is not reliable. Every so often, there's a client who comes in and they could be, you know, 20s, all the way up in age, and there's some connection between families and some child alleges on one night when they were at this person's home or on a couple of nights or some other occasions at a person's cottage or a trailer that they were touched or sexually abused inappropriately. And we're talking to the client, and um, there you can get the sense of bafflement, like that they're just, I can't believe this is happening. And in one case... Again, they were interviewed by police and, and the person didn't speak to counsel, didn't want to speak to counsel, wanted to speak to the police, and literally so t said to the police, I'm, I'm, I'm in shock. I, I, this child has come over to our place, really great child, um, plays with my granddaughter, um, I, I'm in shock. Which then, of course, you know, we don't have a motive to fabricate in this case and, right. and you know, what do you do? And, and and the bafflement, you know, does come across as a really sincere right. expression of like, holy f I can't believe I'm charged with this. And then when you start to, um, you know, we're not saying, there, there are a lot of very legitimate cases of, of abuse, okay, period. Yeah, disclaimer up front. Yeah, but they, there are some exist. cases when you start to delve into the research on certain cases where there are convictions, you start to look at cases where somebody's arguing as a defendant, um, you know, that there would not have been opportunity or the allegation itself is so outlandish mm -hmm. and there's such implausibility that I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do that, you know. Um, and those are not arguments that really um, have much strength in a court because no. generally the approach has been that you know, a person who would commit a sexual assault of a child would go through great risk no matter what. Right. And there is there is some case law about, you know, the myth about what a, a sexual offender would or would not do. But um, it, it's very challenging because every so often you do get a person who says, like, I, I didn't do this. And you do get the sense that they're absolutely telling you the truth. Right. And then we know from other studies... Um, that, you know, children sometimes lie, even of tender years, four, five, six, seven, um, lie for other motives to get attention, to deflect from some other aspect in their life. Maybe there's conflict with parents um, and they're trying to get attention from the parents because they're in a divorce or whatever. And so it's a very difficult situation because your ability to cross-examine on you know, collateral issues is, is really right. 
is really narrow. Sometimes it's not even that they lie. It's just perception, ability to recount what they remember. It's not, they're not necessarily lying. Yeah, so let's put it into two categories. Yeah. So, so from, there are some age, cases. I think from age one to five we were reading, it's rarely a lie. It's more perception, confusion. Five years old up, then lying can begin at a yeah, certain point. Yeah, but then the other issue becomes... If if somebody is alleging years later a historical allegation, That's a different kettle of fish. Where they say they were three or four years of age, right. we know that memory is. I, I I can't remember much beyond my bar mitzvah. What watch are you wearing again? <laughs> that much I do remember, thank God. Okay, but like, just just check I, I don't remember tons when I was six, seven, or eight. I I remember of some not. stuff. Yeah. Little flashes, maybe. So so the memory issue and you know this recovered memory and all that other. It's a whole different. But what we want to focus on is, you know, from an academic point of view, from a, uh, a criminal law litigation point of view, what do you do with a, a complainant who, let's say, you know, you're dealing with somebody between five and 15 years of age. You know, what do we go through uh, to try to defend somebody in such a situation? And what are the issues uh, at play? And, and how do you cross-examine? And you may find this interesting, you may not, but there's some really interesting techniques that I think we should talk about that may tease out what could be an accurate or inaccurate allegation. Yeah. One of the first things we look at, especially with children of that age, it's not just what happens in court, but what's happened outside of court. Uh, for example, I was reading a great article about um, when you're when you're watching video disclosure of the police the officer typically a detective who specializes in this you know taking a statement from the child look at what's going on behind the scenes ask for disclosure of what happened before that child went into the room and and then assess um, is this truly a neutral interview room right um, for example paintings or pictures on the wall are they just abstract or pictures of forests or are they like unicorns and happy playtime situations because if you create the environment where okay we're now entering a room where you can use your imagination for example that almost gives the child permission to okay it's make-believe time or I'm gonna potentially tell you a story let, let me ask you um, how much can you get by way of disclosure about what happened before coming to the police and giving an allegation? Really, what can we delve into about the child's background in life? Well, we can, first of all, request disclosure of any pre-interview discussions that may have taken place. For example, I have a, ca I have a case where I'm watching the uh, video of the child being interviewed by the police. Um, she then wants to take a break and go to the washroom and then I hear off scene a discussion by whether it's a support person or another police officer saying, yeah, we, you know, we, uh, we really try to help children here to uh, discover the truth. And, um, you know, some, some children aren't believed by their parents, but we're here to believe you. So I'm listening to this. Obviously, no one's muted what's going on. Thank so, God. So that, that's, that's a trigger. What's going on there? Is that some sort of pre-coaching taking place? And then obviously when we're cross-examining the parent, what kind of... If the parent if, testifies. If the parent testifies. Sometimes the smart thing is... <laughs> right, right. You know, I have a case coming up where the parent 
specifically was not interviewed. Now, this is a bit different. It's, right. it's in a domestic context, but um, not always parents are interviewed. That's right. So if they are, that can be a goldmine for us. I'm very interested in any sort of pre-coaching that may have taken place. Are we able to get into a dynamic of the family? Like, you know, how far can you go and try and dig to suggest that there's issues with the family structure such that the child is seeking attention? Well, we can look into whether there's any family law proceedings going on, which may give us some clues as to the family dynamics. Um, a lot of times, and again, the article I was reading was American-based. There, they will um, they will go after school records of a child. Not so easy for us. Here. I know. The privacy interests here. Huge, yeah. It's much harder to get discovery of... Right. you know other records in Canada than the United States they do they you have much more latitude totally. in the United States to get access at that stuff which is unfortunate because if the child has you know discipline issues at school has been suspended for any sort of behavior that like there could be a gold mine there we just can't get access to it you know we can well children easily. can have can have a history of lying right can have behavioral issues right. um, connected to all sorts of uh things uh we don't get access to any of that no i know so we're getting a child often as the case i have starting next monday where all i really have is the interview video and the mother coming to testify so i have her statement but apart from that there's nothing so let's talk about that for one second because it's an interesting distinction between us and the united states because every so often I'm critical of the U.S. justice system, and I and I am, and I still really like our system. But in this instance, you know, there's far more information you're able to access by way of motions to get records of school records, psychological records, etc., in the United States than right. Canada. Right. The threshold here is high, as you know. Very high. And they will say that you're on a fishing expedition right. unless you're able to establish that there's something in those records that's relevant to the allegation. Apart from that, you can't delve into the psychological background of the right. child in any way, shape, or form. Same with CAS records. Can't just go on a fishing expedition. You know, let's say a child was diagnosed at an early age with a number of disorders, including, you know, um, oppositional defiant disorder. Compulsive behaviors. Yeah, you know, you we, we, we don't have access to any of that. We right. would never would. No. You know, OD, you know, oppositional defiance, all of that sort of stuff. Nothing. We get nothing. You know, this this is a, a, a difficult topic because right. we have much more access with the typical cases that we deal right, with. Right, with adults. An adult you know, complainant. Adults, we, you know, we get much more material. The child, it's a tip of the iceberg. We have no idea what's underneath. Talk about CAS records for a second because, you know, we have this in, in cases involving parental alienation and other stuff, but also in cases where there's no familiar connection. In other words, it's just a family friend or or a grandfather. Um, you know, if CAS is involved in the investigation of the allegation and has been involved with the child and the child's family prior to an allegation coming out, are we allowed to get access to those records? Again, not that easily unless they've surfaced in the context of a family law proceeding. We can sometimes get from some of our clients, we've seen this, that CAS has investigated, we're closing the file. So that's helpful. That's something. 
the fact that the file was closed, there were no protection concerns. It's of some value, but again, tip of the iceberg stuff unless we get in there. Yeah, so you know what's important for us to say is that in a case where CAS may be involved with the complainant and the family prior to the allegation coming out for unrelated issues to our client, right. we don't get access. Zero. And we're, we, if we brought an application, we'd be shot down. And laughed out of court. And, and there could be information in there that would shed light on reliability issues with the child. Credibility, psychological issues, history of malingering. I haven't used that word in a while. So how do, how do you go about structuring a cross-examination where you have, let's say, a 12, 13-year-old testifying about something from a couple of years before and your client saying, I can't believe this. I didn't do this. I was home. Everybody was here. I did not do this. What, how do you go about that? Well, let's do the real one I have next Monday. It's an eight-year-old girl. He says, she says, no witnesses apart from the two of them. Can I get into the facts or and, no? And I, I would be careful not to identify anything, No, of but course I say not. This, it's not a he said, see, he said. With children, <laughs> it's like a he said, she's correct said. Right, you right. Know, well, that, there's that, a real presumption there's a huge, of truthfulness, right? And that's the problem of dealing with these cases with, for example, eight-year-old complainants. They walk into a courtroom almost with a cloak of credibility. And look, I understand you yeah. can't deal with historic or, or actual abuse if we take a negative sort of look upon the reliability of children. I right. get that. Like I get you shouldn't it, yeah. go in with a presumption, presumption of, of that they're telling truth. Why would they ever lie about this? Right. Right. Which, frankly, we meet. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's there. Well, that's what I have next week, you know. So, you so know. Talk, let's talk so, about it so, and, and relate it because this article was very interesting as we were reviewing it about, you know, cross-examination well, of child right. witnesses. So, so I, I'll just get into the facts very high level. So we have a friend of the family living with the family, this uh, eight-year-old girl. He's seen them a few times when visiting the family there. It's her grandfather's house. He rents a room, maybe met him three or four times, just hi, hello, bye, you know, family gatherings. The allegations focus on the following set of facts. So she says... I go up to his room with my sister, who's six, okay? We go in there, and we're hanging out in his room. He comes over and motions my sister to leave, and he tells me, and I stay. Doors closed. She then claims um, face licking, her version of kissing, and digital penetration under her clothing. Right. All right? Yeah. Pretty bad. His version of events... Um, I was downstairs at the family gathering. Uh, I was barbecuing. I had to go to the washroom, main level washroom occupied. I go upstairs to the upstairs washroom. Um, I go to the washroom, do my business, and then I, I hear my door close on my bedroom. They're like five feet from each other. And he opens his door and he sees little sister, big sister, six-year-old and eight-year-old. And he's like, what are you guys doing in my room? You know, you shouldn't be in here. So he, you know, shoes off the six-year-old. She, she listens, she complies. Um, Eight-year-old stands there and says, well, you can't make me, make me leave. So, you know, says, well, you know, you shouldn't be in here. Come on, let's go. Leads her by the elbow, goes downstairs. Before she reaches the bottom of the uh, stairwell, she looks up and says, oh, I'm going to show you something. 
then she leaves with mom, party's over, and the car when she's leaving with mom, she says to mom, this is what he did to me. I didn't want to tell you inside the house. I'm telling you now, this is what he did to me. It's like black and white. And the client has no history. No, no criminal record, no history. Middle-aged. Middle, young, yeah, middle-aged. Nice, nice enough guy. No, absolutely no, no need. You know, we sometimes we have a smell test, right? You know, sometimes. Yeah. But this guy is like simple tradesperson. I go, well, why would I do that? Yeah, so, again, as we've discussed this many times, you need to find a motive. Look, my approach has been... No motive, it's a tough if, case. If you can't find a motive, you are climbing a very steep right. hill. And we'll talk about, probably in another podcast, revisiting the issue about the law of motive because it's so convoluted and so misconstrued by courts. It's very, very dangerous. But, you know, you really need to try and establish a motive because the presumption is, why would they ever lie Right, of course. And everyone's thinking. It is alive and well. Of course And sometimes they articulate it. Of course they do. So, you know, here at the highest, he's going to be able to say, well, you know, I, I shoot her out of my room. She was pissed off. A little bit of defiant girl. And then she made this up. Is that going to cut it for a judge? I don't know. I guess we'll see. No. It's not enough, right? I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I think I, I think we live in a time where um, as credible as an accused may be to say, look, I mean, I'm, I'm barbecuing. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I discovered. And I went downstairs. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's enough because I think uh, you know, which is scary because, because what will it's... happen is a judge will say, "Well, there is no motive to lie, right. so the absence of a motive to lie is a factor I can consider." Um, the evidence is compelling. What means is in their head they're saying there's no reason for this child to lie, and they'll just discount the denial of the accused simply because the child is saying this and the child is in their mind believable. I mean, that's that's distilling it down right. to as basic a basic, level yeah. as I think as it gets, and that's what happens. And right. and and I got to be honest, you know, from an objective point of view, right. I don't know what the answer to this is because right. children do get abused, children right. do get abused in private settings yeah. where you don't have a video camera, where you don't have witnesses, so they have to be able to say this, right. and you got to be able to deal with that. Right. Um, and we know there's historical issues where we've come up with, you know, abuse of indigenous communities and children and all this stuff. So how do you balance this out? But where you've gotten accused emphatically going, F I didn't f do this. Right. Um, and there's no, there's nothing else to point at. No, nothing. Talk nothing. Let's talk about, I think from an academic point of view, cross-examination. Right. And, and, and it's just funny because we, we wanted to just... We've got like 61, 62 years of experience here, okay? Who's counting when you're having fun? So it was just funny for us to go back about um, looking at articles on cross-examination of child witnesses, both in the U.S. and Canada. And the U.S. has a lot of writing on it, and it's funny. Well, it, it's... But here, here's, a, here's a line I love from an article. It's just, this is a U.S. piece, yeah. which is, it's actually very well written. It is, it is. <laughs> but it's a good one. Um should you cross-examine? <laughs> yeah. 
Cross-examination is always risky, and when child witnesses are involved, the risks are multiplied. One wrong question or one question too many can bring down the examiner's case. Jurors usually like child witnesses, and as adults, the jurors feel protective of the youngster. Well, that's true about judges too. So in the United States, what's interesting, it, this is extremely interesting. So to our viewers who are from the US, in Canada, when we're cross-examining a witness, we have an obligation to put to them essentially the evidence of our client saying, you're not telling the truth and here's why. Not necessarily motive, but your memory may be wrong. You may be confabulating it with somebody else. Uh, you didn't arrive at the time that you say you did. My client wasn't there when you say he did. You were actually with somebody else. So it's our Brown and Dunn. That's a case called Brown and Dunn where we're obligated to at least alert the complainant to the evidence that will be elicited through our client. In the United States, that's not necessary. Right. Isn't that interesting? So in the United States, you can have a witness testify, you can ask questions, but you don't have to directly refute them and then just call your client to refute it. We don't have that's significant. Yeah, we don't have that in Canada. Right. And and when you don't do that in Canada, an adverse inference yes. can be drawn against you right. in your case. Um, I much prefer our system because I think without confronting the witness, your cross-examination is essentially worthless. Right. Um, and a lot can be gained by just challenging the witness, right. regardless of what their answer is going to be. But but they, they talk very interestingly about the dangers of cross-examination just in general of child witnesses, right. which in and of itself you know, underscores the, 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 what we're talking about here is that just that there's, a, there's yes. such a reverence yes. with child witnesses that you really are behind the eight ball right. if you're accused of this. Right. It's landmines potentially for your case. So if you're going to cross-examine, one thing you can do with a child witness, number one, is what? Build a rapport. Build a rapport. What does that mean? That means you don't get into substantive issues right away. You, you build, let's build a rapport is like what it sounds. Build a relationship. Start talking about if they, you know, if they have a support dog that they, you know, just talk about, connect, make a connection with them. About non Johnny, is it okay if I call you Johnny? Right. Johnny, uh, so you're in grade, you're in grade seven. Right. Uh, and I understand from what you told my, my friend over here that uh, you love math. Right. Uh, and you're, uh, you're an excellent student, aren't you, Johnny? Right. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Um, or, or what are you hoping to do later on? Like, oh, you want to you want to become an astronaut? Mm -hmm. That's great. You love space. Right. Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, do, do you? What else do you like in school? Right. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, did Did you watch? You know, do you like science fiction? Did you watch the recent uh, series on Ahsoka? Right. Oh, I love Star Wars too. Right. Right. And then you start to build a rapport. Right. And then if you really want to go after the the child at that stage, you can say, how did you feel about Anakin appearing in episode four of Ahsoka? <laughs> right. And then, and then you start getting into, you, you've built, you've set it up. You start then going into, so you've built the report. Now you're getting into t the difference between telling the truth, not telling the truth, making up stories. You know, move, Star Wars isn't for real, right? You know, that whole kind of area. Well, when Anakin appeared in episode four and five of right. Ahsoka, was he real right or was he just a, a Jedi ghost? Right. I don't think the kid would answer that, would know what to say. Frankly, I don't know either. Uh, I, yeah, I know. Why. I've been reading on that series and I can't figure out whether it's really 
a ghost or if it's something more or if it's just in Ahsoka's mind. But anyways, I'll have to check Reddit later. If my brother-in-law is watching this, Robbie, uh, he you, might you'll know. appreciate this. He might know the answer. I, I, th I think he's probably read every article on that. Um, so then after you build a rapport, one of the suggestions, and I think it's an interesting one, we've done it, is to talk about and cross-examine on non-substantive right. uh, questions to which a child will agree. Um, and then once you got them in this pattern of agreeing of with agreement, you yes. and you have this rapport, then you move to substantive questions. Right, right. What are we talking about there? In terms of what? Non-substantive questions. Well, establishing, for example, the scene. So you went to, on this date, you went to uh, your grandfather's house for a nice barbecue. It was a family barbecue. And, and what did you have to eat? And who was doing the cooking? Do you remember? And... What did your mom do? And what was your little sister doing? So you're going around the peripheral right. of the date this is alleged right. to have happened, and you're asking them about their memory about certain peripheral right. questions right. which they may or may not be able to answer. Right. If you're getting answers where they are not able to say, I don't remember, I don't remember, I can't, I had a hot dog, no, maybe I had a hamburger, maybe I had this or I had that, you're starting to build a case where there may be memory issues. Right. But these are non-substantive as they're not attacking the specific allegation, which is something we do all the time right. with the children. And, and wrong choice of words. We don't attack in these cross-examinations. That, that the article, the dumbest thing you can do is try to be, yeah, yeah. you yes. know, but people, people don't realize it. With a, with a child, it's, there's no Perry Mason aha moments. It's more like, hi, I'm your uncle today. Let's have a fireside chat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Is there a value in going in a non-chronological manner in cross-examining cross a child witness. Of course there is. And, and explain what we mean about that, because sometimes we, you know, we'll have different techniques of how we're going to go in and out of cross-examination, but, but what's the value specifically with, with a child witness? So, so if a child's been coached um, either by the police, which, which is probably not the case, if there's any coaching taking place, we know it'll be by the... Uh, in all likelihood, a family member. So if a child's been coached uh, by the family member before trial, they've gone over their statements with mom or dad multiple, multiple times. And that's, and, and again, we're talking about a non, this is not, you know, in an acrimonious divorce. This is a right. child, un, right. sometimes unrelated. So when the parent finds out, they become invested, of course, with of course. their child. And they start reviewing everything with them over and over and over, right. sometimes before they go, to speak to, to right. police and and I have one case I, I have only one coming up where there is like everybody under the sun family members and extended family members involved with the child and everybody emailing and talking and, and they're really influencing the child in many ways right. but what's happened in that context whether it's family member whoever mom dad uncle, whoever's coaching or or not maybe not intentionally coaching but reviewing right helping them get ready for their day in court is they're doing so in a linear fashion so everything's being recounted memories are being refreshed in a linear type of pattern for the child so kids love patterns as we know right whether it's learning the ABC's or what whatever so one method when you're cross-examining them is to jump around different areas with of with, their evidence of their evidence once you're getting into the substantive area because that'll totally throw them you off you get them out of sequence right you're getting them out of sequence and again that's not to be nasty it's just to test their reliability as witnesses there's nothing wrong with that no that's our job we're that. supposed to do that let, let me ask this so one of the fruitful areas to ask about 
and you've raised the issue is about influence and coaching. Right. How far can we go in that regard? Pretty far. Pretty far, I'd say. So we can talk about who's spoken to you about this. Right, who's spoken to you. Who did you talk to before you went to the police? Right. How often did you have that discussion? What was said? Where was it said? How Did you go see the police again? We've had those cases where s- subsequent statements are provided, right? Sometimes True. we don't hear about them. Or they're <laughs> hidden from you. Or they're hidden from us. Even in right. this day and age. Right. So, so, so to go back about this technique then um, is to try and, and go through the evidence in a nonlinear fashion. So as to take the witness out of the chronology um, so that they can, they may have a hard time remembering and recounting what happened. And interjecting in that, I think sometimes is helpful to go back to who spoke to you about this. Right. Uh, You say this, but your mom spoke to you about that before you spoke to the police. Let's review that for a moment. Okay. Now let's, let's, how did the evening end? Tell me about how things ended that night. Right. Okay, well, let's go back to when you say you were in yeah, you were in the washroom, right. or when you showed up. Did you? How many puppies did you play with? Just to totally, just try to uh, you know de- derail the pattern, so to speak. And again, not maliciously. We're just doing our job. No, I mean, look, we're defense lawyers. Right, I mean, right. our job is to defend yeah, know, but, our clients no matter what. But but you know, that child walks into that courtroom as we've said with a cloak of almost innocence, right? children don't lie why would she lie let's ask something that's interesting I, I or let's talk about children children lie or don't remember well we're all parents well, they okay, we're, yeah, we're parents in say. this room save and except for max he, he doesn't have a child yet not that he knows not of. that he knows of not that he knows of and you know children no lie problem, for all sorts of reasons yes they do okay i mean or color the truth oh f- Okay, let's just call it what it is. (laughs) Did you do your homework? Oh, yeah, it's all done. Yeah, it's finished. I studied for the test. The next day, they never did their assignment or study. You know, so I mean... Yeah, they lie. It's just stupidity. It's human nature. Children lie, adults lie. You know, one of the other techniques to look at, and and, and some judges shut you down on this, is you want to ask about their Mm truth-telling and their history of Mm truth-telling. And some judges are critical of that. They go, well, that's a very... Uh, you know, ambiguous, amorphous question. Do they ever lie? What's wrong, What's wrong with, that? with that? But but it has been shut down. Really? But you have to test and ask them questions. Well, have you ever lied to your parents? Have you ever lied to a teacher? Right. Why have you done that? Did you try and get out of trouble because That's you didn't right. do a homework assignment? Exactly. And then you want to then switch gears also to about their suggestibility. Right. Right. And you want to try and find a technique when cross-examining to demonstrate their suggestibility. Give me an example. Well, you may take them down a line of questions and then ask them something knowing that based upon what you've asked, it's not true. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could ask them down a series of questions if they like sports Mm -hmm. about the Toronto Maple Leafs. And eventually you could take them down the road to say that they have recently won the Stanley Cup, Mm -hmm. which we all know is not true. But we could say to them, you know that they have well, you 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 you, you, know, you know Austin right. Matthews is one of the best players in the NHL, if not the second best player. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love the Maple Leafs. I I know Austin Matthews. He's right. all over my walls. I got Austin Matthews, right. you know, pillows. And then there's John Travaris, who's an amazing hockey player. Right. 
oh, oh, oh my God, I've got posters of him too. And then you can say, well, you know, they've got like four, five, six, seven superstars on the team. Oh, they're the best. They're the best, Mr. Burry. They're yes. they're they're an amazing team. They they're they're just amazing. And they've won the Stanley Cup. Oh my God, they've won it. They're they're just they're the best. They've won it. Right. Because they can go down that path easily and be highly suggestible because right. you've suggested with all these players who are highly successful and great players, ultimately they haven't won the Stanley Cup. Right. But the kid may be led down that road and say that, and then you can go, mm, exactly. they didn't win the Stanley Cup, did they? Right. And you can make the face. Will you get shut down by a judge in Canada on that? Possibly. Why? What's that word? It's called collateral. What? Collateral. It's a collateral fact. I knew that. Yeah. So here's another interesting thing. So in the United States, you get more leeway with cross-examination than we do here. Oh, yeah. So there's the collateral evidence rule. If it's collateral to the issues that play in the trial, you can get shut down. And so if you're trying to test the suggestibility of a particular witness, especially a child, you may have to go down a lot of rabbit holes, right? So I'm just using the example of the Toronto Maple Leafs, who I do love and I do follow. Um, and I hope to God this is going to be a great season. And I am glad that they signed Austin Matthews to an extension. Um, not that I'm kissing ass, but I really do like this. Because um, I have no hope in the Raptors this year, but leaving that aside. Yeah. Um, we'll get shut down in Canada. We'll absolutely get shut down. Very quickly. <laughs> You're laughing at me. Uh, We're laughing. They're laughing with you. I, yeah, I love the Raptors too, but like, there's no f-ing hope this year. No, not no hope. No. Notable fact: What did Canada do this year in the uh, World Basketball Championships? Bronze. FIBA. Bronze. Oh. Yes. Fucking a Canada. Exactly. Toast to them. Yes, toast to them. I'm not done yet. I didn't think so. I just want to toast to the I know, to, just, to Canada. You refresh your lips there. So we are very restricted sometimes here, and this is something everybody should pay attention to. When we want to go down certain routes to try and establish the witness may be suggestible or lying on other issues as to reflect back on the credibility in this particular case, we can get shut down very easily on collateral uh, collateral questions. And still make the argument. I know. You we might don't get... have enough leeway in this regard. I know. You know, and I think, and, and particularly in sexual assault cases, the, the push has been and with, re- ad- with respect to adult cases, is to narrow us down to the issues at hand. And it's right. like, you know, you, wanna a- you want us to just simply ask about what happened in the right. bathroom right. and the facts leading up to that, and that's it. That's right. And that's not a way to go about cross-examination or test a witness's no. reliability or credibility. That's not the whole person. That's... It's a problem here in it Canada. Is. Where were we? This, it's a good article. I, I, I've read, you know, a couple of Canadian articles on this, which... With all due respect, followed a lot about the um, a lot of the U.S. articles. Right. So I, I would say this, and and we can, you know, probably wrap up with about techniques, which is trying to deal with inconsistencies. So you want to try and draw and create inconsistencies with the in court testimony versus the mm-hmm. the um, the statement and maybe prior acts of the child. But again, we're restricted by the collateral evidence rule. So how do you do that where their statement has been admitted under 715? I'm glad you brought that up now. So can no you problem. explain that to everybody here? Because that's a really important point. No, you. 
No, I'm I'm gonna have a drink. Okay, well me too. No, seven no, fifteen is the crown the crown applies. Seven fifteen point one point one, the crown applies to have the statement given, typically a a video interview which has been reduced to a transcript, admitted for the truth of its content. So in Canada, if you have a child witness under eighteen years of age and the statement has been given relatively contemporaneous with the events in question. Oh, yeah, which that means, part. Which means sometimes within the last two to three years. <laughs> Don't get me started. Of the events. Okay. Um, and, and there's some other factors. but Yeah, there's really a few tests. But the main it, one it is... It's just like this statement. It's like it's put a stamp on it. Yeah, it's, it's true. Nail it it's in, gold. Okay? Yeah. So the statement on video gets admitted as evidence at the trial. Right. That is the child's evidence accepted by the court. Yeah, it's... It's in. Think about that. Do you that. get that? So the video statement goes in. And then you're also dealing with cross-examining a child through a Samsung TV. <laughs> yeah. Or if it's not a very uh, technologically advanced um, courthouse, it could be one of the old RCA TVs or something yeah. else. But With the child three different colored... Imports, inputs. So... So the child is also going to testify through closed circuit TV because they'll bring that application yeah. and then in that room they'll have their support worker. So you're faced with the video going in as evidence right. in chief. Yep. Boom. And then you get to cross-examine through TV. Right. Wow. So when you're dealing with a 715.1 situation, which is across the board. Yeah, it's not just You kids, need it's... to try as best as you can through cross-examination where a judge won't su shut you down is to go over areas of cross-examination to try and create inconsistencies with that videotape statement. Yeah. Now, here's do you one other thing. you have thing. to put those to the witness? Absolutely. I was, yeah, well, yeah. You have to take them. You have to try and create. You go over the sequence of events, try and create an inconsistency, mm -hmm. say, well, that's not what you said in your statement. Exactly. Here's that page something. You said it happened in the bedroom. Now you're saying the bathroom. But then there are limits to cross-examining a child witness based upon time mm -hmm. right. and amount of questions. You know, it's not like you can go on for days. Right. There will be a limit. A judge will say at some point, it's an exasperating experience for the child. It's yeah. too much. Right. So that's the other thing you have to be careful about because there's only so much we're going to be allowed to ask over a certain period of time. You have to pick if and choose. If it seems that we're becoming abusive right. or we're going too long and the child is getting tired. Frustrated. Frustrated, etc. That's not going to go to the defense lawyer's advantage, and you're going to be shut down. Instantly. Okay, I'm tired. Yeah, um, I know. It's been a long this day. This is something I think we should examine a little bit more. I think so. Because the other thing that it flows into, and we've spoken to, to this factor before, is that we have this also in a lot of the parental alienation cases we have where there are criminal charges. And a lot of the same factors apply. The only advantage in those cases is usually the the uh, other spouse, whether it's male or female, testifies and you get a wealth of evidence from them. Right. But these are factors that should be taken to, into consideration for both cases, whether it's one whether it's out of a divorce mm -hmm. or one where it's one of these allegations she with says, somebody she who's says, just yeah. a family, friend, or whatever. Right, right. But these are really challenging cases. And I think in our next episode, I want to talk a little bit about motive again. We, we looked at it sometime before, but we got a lot of questions about what the f*** does that mean? Right. And people don't really understand. I'll leave it on this cliffhanger, and I think we're going to address okay. it in the next podcast, is that, you know, if the Crown is able to establish that there's no motive to fabricate, 
that can be the knife in the heart of a defense. Evidence of no motive to fabricate. Yeah, don't. Ne next podcast. Yeah, I know. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for viewing. Um, Where's the pillow? Pillows. Still nice and clean. Marcy, say it. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share. And please send us your questions. Um, it's great having all the input. We really appreciate it. So keep sending us those questions, comments, etc. And we'll address anything you want to hear in future episodes. And we've got a bunch of episodes coming up that's really going to be interesting. We got a criminologist coming on soon. We got a, a, a psychologist who's dealt with um, uh, false accusations. We got some real interesting guests coming up. We're going to be addressing some very good issues. So and send us your watch questions too. <laughs> good night, everybody. Good night.